This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. If a tool existed that would reduce negative encounters with wildlife in your municipality, would you implement it? I think most listeners to this podcast would. And a new toolkit is available that can actively help residents do just that. The Wildlife Attractant Bylaw Toolkit was developed by Serratus Wildlife Services for the Get Bear Smart Society. It's a comprehensive document that can help municipalities across Canada, particularly those in British Columbia, easily and affordably introduce attractant management bylaws. Such bylaws act as an educational tool as well as an enforcement option and can improve outcomes for wildlife by identifying and treating a core issue, attractant management. To explain the toolkit, why bylaws are an essential tool for municipalities, and what it can look like for residents or community leaders to use the document, Defender Radio was joined by toolkit author Meg Toom of Serratus Wildlife Services. I wanted to talk a little bit about what bylaws are. Before we dive into the bylaw toolkit, before we dive into how people can use them and why they're important and all of that, I think there's a lot of folks out there who maybe just don't have the experience um, to, to understand sort of where bylaws exist, why they exist, and how they can be used. So could you tell us a little bit, just sort of in general, about municipal bylaws? Yeah, so for sure. It, it, there's a lot of kind of gray areas. And, and, you know, let's be honest, it's not the most interesting topic for some. It's, uh, you know, I, t- I say the word bylaw and I get this glazed look and everybody's kind of... <sighs> but... <laughs> Bylaws are crucial um, kind of uh, local regulations. They reflect a community's overall principles um, and they're meant to evolve as a community changes. So, you know, bylaws are often revised based on the needs that are changing within the community. Um, and they should, they're living documents. They should be reviewed. They should be updated as, as needs change. So essentially, you know, all municipalities have within their websites just the list of all the existing bylaws. You've got anyway from noise bylaws. Um, obviously, we're going to talk about wildlife attractant bylaws, tree cutting bylaws, soil removal. There's all sorts of, you know, they are rules and regulations to kind of keep things um, copacetic for everybody within a community. We're all doing the same thing. I, I've also found that bylaws are are probably the the most effective way to make change for most individuals uh if you're looking for something to happen in your community or you need some kind of regulation put in place or you believe there needs to be one it is a lot i should say in my experience it can be significantly more straightforward to get a bylaw put in place than to try and deal with a provincial or federal government in which the process for creating legislation is f- significantly more in depth uh, and can have much far, much further reaching consequence or impact as well than a local bylaw. Right. And and to that point, you know, as I was saying before, each community, each municipality or regional district, whatever you're dealing with is, is, is unique, is individual. Mm. And so being able to kind of set their own guidelines for how they want things to happen within their own community is crucial. And a well-written bylaw is to me a huge um, educational tool so if it's well written and people can read it and understand it and kind of get a sense of okay well okay i've moved to this new community and now i understand why they have this 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 and this bylaw because this Mm -hmm. is what's important to them and this is what we need to regulate and kind of keep an eye on so 
it must be, and this was the kind of the whole point of putting together this toolkit is because we want bylaws to be easy to read um, for the general public so they can read through it and understand it and not just abide by it, but also understand why it's there. Um, it it kind of helps to define a community, what, what their bylaws are. Absolutely. And it's also a way of making significant social change. Um, but yeah. it's it's a process that you, you really can access as a citizen. You can really have an impact and it can be something that is laser precision or it can be relatively broad. And I think that kind of mm -hmm. leads us to then what this bear toolkit is or maybe what the need for it was. Why did we decide we had to put this together? Uh, and by we, of course, I mean, not me at all, but <laughs> the Get Bear Smart Society and Serenus Wildlife Services. Yes, absolutely. So um, essentially, you know, uh, I've been doing uh, wildlife conflict, uh, the area of, of the field of wildlife conflict for over 16 years. Mm -hmm. And I've amended and revised a few bylaws along the way. And the emails and the phone calls that I would get from other communities saying, hey, we've got this problem, we've got bears accessing garbage, we've got people putting out bird feeders, we've, we've got an issue. And it, it was mainly focusing on, on bears for sure, but you know, this toolkit will help with other wildlife, not just bears, but we'll focus on bears for the purposes of this conversation. Um, and there was just such a need out in the, in the general, and I was getting calls from you know, the states, um, um, not just within BC, within Canada and within the States, just people trying to figure out how can we do things better because um, bears are being killed um, because of accessing, I mean, no fault of their own, accessing food that people are leaving out for them. And so it becomes, you know, obviously a public safety concern, but obviously, you know, we should be protecting, conserving the wildlife that we share the landscape with. So um, a lot of the communities within BC are interested in what the, the provincial government has. It's called the Bear Smart Program, which, you know, can be more for other communities it doesn't necessarily have to be just BC specific. But um, many communities are struggling with, with wildlife um, conflict and issues. So um, trying to create a toolkit for people. Um, and funnily enough, I got an email two days ago from um, a community member, and I believe this person's on a volunteer organization. And he's just really struggling with the fact that um, they've got a lot of bears in town. They're getting into a lot of garbage and they don't seem to have a council who's particularly interested or motivated to make changes. And also from a financial perspective, they're thinking, you know, this is just too much. We can't take this on. So I emailed him the toolkit and said, hey, take a look through this. It kind of will help you get a better sense of why you need a bylaw, how you can possibly approach your council to convince them that a bylaw is necessary because they don't have anything in place. Yeah. Um, so that was the the, the, the the kind of the background on why we thought this was necessary and why bylaws are important and what the, what the issue is. And it's interesting to me, and, and I am familiar with this situation, but if you could talk a bit about um, the resistance that can occur because in my experience um, in Ontario, BC, Alberta, wherever, municipalities will very quickly say, well, wildlife is a provincial issue, therefore we're not gonna touch it and we just need the province to do their thing. And that, that is sometimes the attitude and sometimes not that direct, but wildlife has been a provincial mandate. Uh, so why or, or what leads to that kind of disagreement and is a bylaw something that can help bridge that gap? Sure. So we do hear that quite often. Municipalities are reluctant to, as they consider, manage wildlife. And, and of course, it is a provincial 
responsibility to manage the actual wildlife, but it is a municipal or local government responsibility to manage the wildlife attractants mm -hmm. that bring the, the wildlife into the community. So it's a shared responsibility. No, we're not asking the municipality to manage the wildlife. That's the province's responsibility. But what we are asking them to do is to step up and manage the attractants that are bringing the wildlife in. It's all very preventable. And so trying to shift that kind of lens to, yeah, we are part of the problem. We are the huge, huge part of the problem. Um, so how do we manage that? And um, as we stated in the, in the toolkit, the, you know, um, local government, they have many rules and regulations to protect public safety. And, and, and this is just another kind of cog in the wheel for protecting public safety and also conserving and protecting the wildlife. But it is definitely um, the crux of the matter is humans are intentionally and unintentionally feeding wildlife. And this then provides, as you mentioned earlier, and I'm not sure if we were recording it, but you had noted that a bylaw is a great educational tool. And I, I a thousand percent agree with that. And I'll often say the same thing. Um, could you talk a bit about how, because I think that the concern for some elected officials is, well, you're giving me a hammer to solve this problem and I don't want to use a hammer, right? They see enforcements or fining as a negative. It may not be good for re-election time. There's residents who maybe are not able to pay financially. It could be a hardship. There's a lot of, I think, fair and not necessarily fair uh, uh, pushback on that. Um, so could you speak a bit about the educational value, too, of having these bylaws in place? For sure. And as I said earlier, that a well-written bylaw, one that can be comprehended by the average person, because sometimes they can be quite highfalutin with legalese, kind of, and it just goes uh -huh. right over someone's head. Um, so if it's well-written, <clears throat> it can be used as an educational tool, absolutely. And it has to have a level of reasonableness so that the enforcement personnel are able to go in and educate themselves. So typically, and, and all the bylaw um, enforcement officers that I've ever worked with, getting voluntary compliance is the priority. Trying yep. to get that human to understand what they need to do, how they need to change their behaviors to make things work better is their top priority. They don't want an issue a ticket if they don't necessarily have to um, because of this, the, the comments you made about some people just can't afford to pay the ticket. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, if you can get someone to change their behavior willingly, independently on their own, then you're going to have more success than if you hit them with a hammer and a fine because they're going to be resentful. And they, you know, some people can't afford the fines and they will yep. continue to pay the fine because they don't care. They're not going to change the behavior. So that's why bylaws are so important to, to you, be used as an educational tool to help motivate people to understand what they're doing, how it's not working what we need to do to make you in compliance with the bylaw and how we can do that without having to issue the fine. Having said that, having the fines associated with the bylaw are the, you know, the teeth for bylaw enforcement um, should they not be gaining, vol gaining voluntary compliance. So yeah, education. And so once you write a bylaw and, and get your communications team involved, um, it's a great way for them to just educate the community that, hey, we have a new bylaw in place. This is why what we've done. This is why we're doing it. This is where we need your help as a community to make it a success. And, you know, again, well written so that um, I sat in on an adjudication process a few years back and there were about eight or nine folks there who had been issued uh, tickets or notices. And um, 
a lot of them were just saying, I didn't understand when I read through what I had done wrong and I went and referred to the bylaw, I, I didn't get it. Yeah. So we went back and we revised that bylaw and we broke it down into sequential steps so that everybody, it was very clear and it was we removed any kind of um, arbitrary kind of wording so that it was very, very well-spoken and clear. When we talk about enforcement, um, as we said, there's a lot of pushback on it. There's people who don't want to impose a fine. There's people who think that it's inappropriate for a government at all to be sort of forcing them into any right. behaviors. Okay. So what are tools we could use or what are concepts we can use even to just sort of maybe soften that a little bit? So right before we hit that nail on the head with the hammer, we go, you're going to be okay, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's... Um again back to the whole voluntary compliance if the bylaw is well written and we can use it as an educational tool the other key element to implementing a new bylaw is having education program and and there are a lot of um, volunteer organizations there's also let's say bc that does educational programs within different communities so when you have this kind of bylaw um especially a new bylaw um a standalone bylaw created it's always um helpful very helpful to have an education program part of it so that you give a lead up you let people know we're implementing this new bylaw we're going to be doing education we're going to be going door to door canvassing checking on garbage cans to make sure people are in compliance you know education you'll you know your first little door hanger you get or sticker on your garbage can is basically education it's um, and then, you know, eventually over time, we're going to build up and it'll, maybe they'll be getting out some warnings. And then obviously, if that's not working, then tickets will be. So it's a, it's a staggered approach. You ease people in. You do a lot of education and, like you said, messaging through social media. And then, you know, and it's up to each individual enforcement officer to determine whether or not that person's being reasonable or not. So um, creating a reasonable bylaw that's easy for enforcement personnel to actually enact is mm. crucial. If it's too prescriptive, it, it pigeonholes them and they don't have a lot of discretion. Um, but if you make it too general, then it, you know, it gets confusing for the person who's reading it and trying to comply with the law. Yeah. So it's, it's a fine, it's a very fine line, but you have to have um, an excellent education component to the bylaw. Um, and you have to have, you know, tie that in really well with, with your enforcement team. Um, so it's, it's a partnership and then bringing that into the community as this, this whole program that we're starting and you're a part of the solution, like, you, you know, help us help yeah. you to do the right things. We're all on this together kind of thing. And I think that's always got to be the attitude when we talk about wildlife and we talk about the environment, because it's so easy to say, that's not my issue or I'm not the problem right it's it's easy to just redirect very frequently in some of these because the bears aren't having a voice that is being listened to or, or picked up by media in the way that um we would like uh i won't say they don't have a voice we just don't listen to it very well uh in the toolkit something uh, there, there's a couple of parts i'd love to touch on briefly one is that you include the first nation bylaw considerations so one of the you know there's a couple of bits of background and stuff but then right at the top this is something that's going to be unique to a lot of different regions across Canada. Why is this an important consideration? And is it something that requires a lot of specialty? Or is it something that most communities will be able to manage on their own? Um, great question. So uh, with the community that I worked within for many years, um, had a um, uh, obviously a First Nation um, 
component. And we, we had wildlife working group meetings and we had a First Nation representation during those meetings. Um, and we worked very closely with them. However, they did not have a wildlife attractant bylaw. And, you know, wildlife, um, they utilize the landscape irrespective of jurisdictions. So when you've got um, multi-jurisdictional communities, it's important for everybody to be doing the same thing. Um, so that's why we, we thought it obviously very important to include a First Nation consideration within the bylaw toolkit because um, First Nation reserves can absolutely have their own wildlife attractant bylaws. And um, that just, again, work everybody working together to do the same cause it's it's crucial um and i think too it's for a lot of communities um and i think again i think of southern ontario which is uh much different in that regard it's also a great opportunity to engage other communities that maybe we don't normally absolutely and and the, the first nation um in the community that i worked with they actually went ahead and um built a wildlife proof enclosure for one of their new townhouse complexes which is awesome. just absolutely awesome yeah <laughs> so you know leaps and bounds ahead of what we were doing so it, it was just um a, again a shared responsibility that we all took really seriously and the collaboration was awesome so absolutely um like i said wildlife just moved through the landscape they don't care yep <laughs> i i am always tickled when people say well i've got a fence and there's still raccoons coming in it's like, well, mm. why, why do you think they're like, did, did you make it a 24 foot domed fence with like, yeah. you know, <laughs> plastic all over it or something? I, anyway, uh, I think that's one of those little expectations need to be aligned at times as well. Um, right. So going through the, the table of contents again, just sort of as the, the, the base talking point, you include in this a lot of basic information and then a comprehensive sample bylaw as well as a guide to that sample bylaw. And I found that very helpful for me. So again, I have some familiarity with bylaws and legalese and the, the policy process, but it's still helpful to have the explanation of what the parts are. And it almost makes me think of, um, if you've seen these in uh, uh, for students, for Shakespeare, it has the original text and then it has what they're actually saying next to it. <laughs> Because like, it's cool if you can stand up there and deliver it. What the what? Yeah, sometimes yeah. you just need to know what wither to ever means. And they say, yes, it just absolutely. means, oh, that guy, whenever. <laughs> uh, so is that, yeah, is that sort of the same intent here, just to make sure? Absolutely. Because like I said, people, when they read bylaws, it's like puts them to sleep. And, and, and also you get that glazed look and that kind of what? So what we did was just the introduction of why we need the bylaws and considerations for people. And then we went into, let's give people an actual sample bylaw. This is the dream bylaw, right? Mm -hmm. This is probably um, a lot more than what most municipalities would want to take on board initially. Um, so in the community that I used to work with, uh, Implemented their first wildlife tract and bylaw in 2004, and it was very, very basic, but it was a great start. Mm -hmm. um, then within you know, a few years, by 2009, we revised it because the community changed our knowledge of what was going on, changed. And then just recently in 2021, um, it was revised again because of, again, we learned new things. So providing this sample bylaw it, like i said it's very comprehensive and then we then broke it down like you said step-by-step -step guide each section of the bylaw we tried to explain 
and special considerations based on each community's needs, what you might want to add, what you might want to eliminate. And I, I think it's just it's such a great way of setting that information up for folks so that they can easily access it and understand it. There is one element of this that is often, I think, contentious and often probably one of the more difficult parts of attractant management to talk about is bird feeders. So bird feeders, I mean, like we've got the avian flu outbreak in Southern Ontario right now, like mm -hmm. everyone else, and all of the stores are still selling their 80 pound bags of bird seed and bird feeders and all of that stuff with no notices. Um, it is a very difficult uh, uh, seed to crack for the sake of a segue. Um, <laughs> is there a way to write in sort of a variable on bird feeders? Because again, in bear country, bird feeders are frequently a problem. Um, when yeah. you don't necessarily have large mammals around, it can still be a big problem, but a much less visible one. And therefore I have found a lot of communities, they're willing to talk about wildlife feeding. They're willing to talk about attractants, but they want some kind of context or they want some kind of variable switch with the, uh, uh, bird feed bird feeders. Is there a way to approach that, that will kind of make everybody happy or does it have to be at times a black and white or black or white situation? Yeah, I, it's it's a tough one for sure. Um, so some communities actually outright ban bird feeders during bear season. Mm. So March to November or so, not allowed bird feeders. That's pretty black and white. Yeah. That gives you the exact guidelines, easy to read, easy to understand, hopefully easy to comply with. Um, and typically birds, if they're gonna be fed, they require the feeding more over the winter than they do over the spring, summer and fall months. Um, then you have also hanging. So what we've put in there, and, and it's, it, it sounds quite gray, is it must be a bird feeder must be made inaccessible. Okay. And how a person does that is basically up to them. But then the education component of that is then there should be something on the municipality's website saying, you know, it has to be hung at least 10 feet off the ground and 10 feet away from a climbable structure. That gives guidelines on how high and how far away it needs to be done. So it's mm -hmm. out of reach of a bear standing on its back legs. But what it does do by being quite general, by saying the bird feeder must be inaccessible is it provides the enforcement personnel to use discretion on what they consider to be accessible or inaccessible. Yeah. Um, if it's too prescriptive, then it becomes, you know, if it, it becomes difficult to enforce. The other key element to bird feeders is um, the requirement must be, they must include a seed catch tray. Yeah because the seeds drop into the ground and that's when you so a neighbor of mine has a bird feeder out i think they've removed it now because they've obviously heard about the the issue with bird feeders and the um, avian flu they had a bird feeder just on one of those stands that's you know you stick it into the ground a pole they had a couple suet feeders and bird feeders hanging from it so it was about maybe four feet off the ground and underneath it they had a rat trap so they were creating a food chain yeah so instead of putting a catch tray underneath to catch the seeds, they were killing the rats. Yeah, it's... The rats were coming to feed the, you know, you can't blame the rat for coming for the food. Yep. Why don't you put a, a catch tray underneath? Um, and the, the community I'm living in right now does not require that. They just, it's it's pretty general. And I think every every community should include the catch tray at least because that just creates a whole food chain in your neighborhood. That, there, <laughs> I have seen a few bird feeders and I swear, they're just, they're like short gopher feeders or something. They are off, not even yeah. a foot off the ground, six inches yeah. from touching the grass. 
And I just, I see that and I understand, so, well, they don't want to get a big post. They don't want to do this. I understand the logic behind it, but I look at that and it's like a drive through for every rodent yeah. in the neighborhood. Yeah. And you, if you look at what happened in Stanley Park last year with the coyote situation, I mean, I took a walk through there one day and there were people walking around the lake with a Ziploc bag full of bird seed yep. and they were just throwing the seed. And then one of the bridges had bird seed piles all along the railing. Yes with people taking pictures, not even thinking for a minute that they might be attracting other animals to feed. And obviously coyotes are gonna eat the rodents that go for the bird seed, plus they'll eat the bird seed themselves. Mm -hmm. So again, people are just not putting the wheels in motion to think that they're creating these food chains in their yards that are, they, you know, may, maybe they think it's harmless, but you know, obviously killing rats because you're feeding the birds. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I actually have a photo. A knowledge gap. Yes, I have a photo I, I will send you, and I'll see if I can attach to this episode somehow, of uh, this was my old neighborhood in Hamilton. Someone would just throw pounds of bird seed out their window, and yeah. there was peanut shells everywhere. It was the corner of a major intersection with a fence up. I got a picture of a cat on the fence, like, swiping at the bird feeder. And it's, uh, yeah. again, it's one of those, if you put that out, you're yeah. feeding everybody you're not just feeding the birds and arguably when you feed the birds you can be causing harm especially you know avian influenza is one example but a lot of that food is not good quality it's not good for birds or other wildlife uh, and i've heard bird feeders referenced in terms of bears as just like it's like a high fat high calorie protein ball effectively right oh, for like, sure yeah it's, it's just Absolutely. a great snack for sunflower them. seeds lots of fat and you typically see when bears are coming out of hibernation in the spring when a lot of birds a lot of bears getting into bird feeders and people think that might be harmless but it's just attracting them into residential neighborhoods and that never ends well for the bear yeah never so we need to again put the wheels in motion connect um what our actions to the big picture and that's why having this bylaw that covers off all of these different attractants that many people just don't make the connection to that this is a bad thing the other thing is fruit trees yes people just say well that's okay i don't care if a bear eats my cherries or my apples but i think these are these are domestic fruit trees they are not wild they are in your front or backyard they are allowing wildlife to come into your yard creates a public safety concern and like i said Typically, when bears enter neighborhoods, it never really ends well for them. So um, the original bylaw that I worked on many years ago required the resident to remove fruit from the ground every three days. Yeah, that's a good one. And that became a nightmare to enforce, if you can imagine. Well, I it, find it's, how do you enforce that? But what's fascinating, <laughs> and I've heard about this in some communities, there's volunteer programs that will go out and collect the fruit because it can be it's edible food. And we've got yes. people who don't have enough food. Therefore, yes. there's a real simple solution here. Spend a couple of days a month going out and picking some fruits and letting a local food bank know or donating it or enjoying it yourself. Um, right. Fruit's good for us. Some. Yeah, right just quality. research what your community. Yeah, absolutely. Research what your community has. The other thing that we did because we did have a fruit picking program, but we actually had it, it was meant for more more for people who just were physically unable to pick the fruit. Yeah. But it became a bit of a, a crutch for some folk who. Um, I remember going to one house. Um, I was fortunately, and and the family was sitting inside the house having supper, watching me pick their tree, and so I thought mm, something's wrong with this situation. 
So what we try to do with social media is connect people. So there's a food exchange program now on a Facebook page. So if someone's got some apples ripening, hey folks, come by my place. This is the address. Pick your fruit. That's awesome. So it's a just again connecting people we can all be a part of the solution but the whole fruit thing is there's this misnomer that fruit trees are natural food for bears and and it's not it's it's domestic fruit and so what we did in the bylaws is just made it very kind of again somewhat general that the fruit on the trees and the bushes has to be made inaccessible how you go about doing that is up to you Mm -hmm. and it's up to the bylaw enforcement officer to determine whether your actions are reasonable or not whether you actually are trying to manage that attractant and so you could put up an electric fence if you want to like a portable electric that the portable fence goes around the tree while it's ripening once they've harvested the fruit you can pack away the the electric fence till next season so um picking the fruit and let it ripen inside or knocking off some of the blossoms in the spring so you don't have so much of a harvest pruning the tree so it's smaller shorter more manageable to harvest because you get these trees that are just ginormous the top to pick the apples except the bear mm-hmm. that actually um i had that conversation with my partner she used to have a fruit tree and i said well i'd love to get one um and she said but the problem was it would get so tall you would never be able to get to the fruit in time and then hornets or wasps mm-hmm. or whatever would come and yep. desiccate them and then you just have junk all over the ground but that was my thought was okay well what if every week we just get out with the stepladder and prune it soon get no taller than eight feet just every time yeah. it hits that mark, we go snip or saw and push it out wider uh, to make it more accessible for us. But uh, like, I think there's lots of solutions for that kind of stuff. And it's cool that the bylaws uh, can incorporate that. I think it's it's so important, though. That does lead to the final question I have on the bylaws themselves, and that is the costs. So municipalities, probably more so than the provincial or federal government, are a lot worried about balancing books about not overspending about not going into deficits um, because I think you can have a lot more dire impact a lot faster than it can at the provincial or federal level. If there is resistance because they don't want to spend the money on bylaw officers or they don't think that it's worth it, is there sort of a, I'm not going to say a built-in argument, but a, a common response to that to try and just sort of move away from this, it costs money so it can't be doable. Yeah. So what we've kind of outlined in, in, this toolkit is creating a standalone bylaw might be a bit overwhelming for a municipality. This is the first time they've ventured down the road of wildlife attracting bylaws. And so that's why we provide the sample bylaw so you can just cut and paste bits of it into existing bylaws. And that it doesn't need a lot of money to do. Um, And that's why we've made it hopefully very simple for people to do that. So a lot of communities go in and they, they take their solid waste or recycling bylaw and they'll take snippets and just amend that bylaw by adding in a few clauses about when your garbage cans can go out and how they must be stored and inaccessible. Sometimes they'll actually add a little bit in there about bird feeders or whatever. Um, A standalone bylaw is definitely more preferable than amending an existing bylaw, an actual standalone wildlife attractive bylaw. But now that we've given this one, it should simplify the process and it shouldn't be onerous and it should not be financially um, unfeasible to create a standalone bylaw. It's basically, you know, you do need some legal oversight and all municipalities have that. Um, yep. But essentially it's, it's there for people to take and use uh, so that it's not financially onerous 
or, or you know, staff time-wise. To get your free copy of the Wildlife Attractant Bylaw Toolkit, follow the links in this week's show notes or download it at bearsmart.com. You can connect with MakeTomb via LinkedIn. Links are in the show notes. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I'd love to hear what you thought of this and other episodes. Rate and review Defender Radio and The Switch on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to help even more people learn about wildlife and coexistence in their communities. You can stay in touch with me by following me on Instagram, at Howie Michael, or on Facebook and Twitter, at Defender Radio. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bearers. Thank you for listening. <laughs>